1: When we're in the midst of grief, seeing the gift in what we've lost may seem far away, but on the other side of endings are new beginnings. Loss reminds us of the preciousness of life and can cleanse us through our mourning. Loss can be like the winter, which is always followed by spring. How can we move with grace through difficult losses? How can we reset our compass through the dark night of the soul? How can humor help us deal with everyday trials and tribulations as well as triumph over tragedy? The answers to these and many other questions will be our focus today with our guest, Alan Klein. Alan Klein is the former director of Life and Death Transitions in San Francisco. He's a recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. He's the author of many books, including The Healing Power of Humor, The Courage to Laugh, Change Your Life, A Little Book of Big Ideas, and Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, Embracing Life After Loss. Join us for the next hour as we explore the gifts of loss with our guest, Alan Klein. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Alan, welcome.
2: Good to be here.
1: Good to have you here. First of all, I would like to how did you find your way to therapeutic humor?
2: Well, it started over 30 years ago to what some people might say was a tragic event. My wife, we found out, had a terminal illness, um, and she did pass away when she was 34. We found out when she was 31. And it was definitely a very difficult three years, we had a young daughter. Uh, we had just moved to San Francisco from New York City. We always wanted to live there. She was born there. I was born on the East Coast. We found this great Victorian house that I always wanted. I would sit in New York City and draw pictures of Victorian houses. And I guess didn't realize I was manifesting a big Victorian house, but that happened. And then she went to the doctor and the doctor said, we need to put you in the hospital and do some tests. Your liver doesn't look great. And they did the test, and he came back and said, I don't understand this, but you have a rare liver disease, primary biliary cirrhosis. He said mostly women over 65 get this, and Ellen was 31. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, it was a very difficult three years. There was no hospices at the time, and there were virtually no liver transplants. Mm -hmm. I think maybe there were five, and people just lasted a couple of months. So... It, w- it wasn't a great time, but Ellen had a great sense of humor and continued to use it even during those difficult years. Give you give you one idea. Oh,
1: please, tell me.
2: She was in the hospital and she had a copy of Playgirl magazine with a male nude centerfold. And she said, Ellen, hey, I-, I really like this man this month. Can you put this hunky photo on the wall over here, the centerfold? <laughs> and I said, Ellen... This is a hospital. It's a little risque for that. And she said, well, maybe you're right. She said, why don't you get a leaf from the plant and cover up that part? (laughs) (laughs) And Justine, I did that and things are fine for the first day, fine for the second day. But the third day, the leaf starts shriveling (laughs) up and reveal what we were trying to conceal. (laughs) And we would just look at a leaf or a plant or remember that incident and we would start to laugh.
1: Oh, sweet.
2: And I realized it wasn't a lot of laughter. It was five or ten seconds, but it helped us rise above the situation, gave us a little reprieve, gave us a different perspective, which humor always does. In any situation, if you find humor in it, you see it a little differently, you get a perspective. I didn't realize it was doing all that at the time, but that's, looking back, um, that's how humor kind of saved the day for us. What was your
1: work at that time?
2: At the time, I had my own business in San Francisco. It was a silkscreen company. It was doing very well. We I had started it with a partner, and um, when Ellen died, I went back and I said, "Tom, I said, I this is not what I'm supposed to be doing in life." I said, "I don't know what it is, but it's not silkscreening." You know, I there was some Ellen's death made me realize there was some bigger purpose.
1: But it wasn't only Ellen's death. You were left with a young daughter. I yes. think your daughter, what, was eight or ten? Uh, yeah, ten, years, 10 old. years old. I mean, that's shocking now. Suddenly, you're a single father. Right,
2: exactly. And so it was, it was not an easy time. But there was some, you know, I believe in listening to your gut. And I just listened to my gut thinking, I'm not supposed to be doing silk screening. I'm supposed to be doing something greater. And I don't know what it is. But just give up the business. So I sold it to my partner, hung out for a while, and then this brochure came from the Holistic Life University. And one of the divisions was the Life-Death Transition Institute.
1: You know, I have to say, Alan, New Dimensions was associated with Holistic Life University. This was way back when in the 70s. Wow. And they were on, I what was the street they were on? Kirkham, I think. Yeah, Kirkham or Norton or, no, Norton Kirkham, or, yes, or it's yes. one of those streets yes. in San Francisco. and. And um, William Staniger uh, was part of it. Oh, yes. It takes me way back to our early days. So you had a brochure and you
2: looked. So I looked and I saw life, death, transition. No one that close to me had ever died before. Um, I didn't want to do silk screening. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I thought, I'll take their classes and see what this is about. Hospices were just starting. So they were training uh, people to work in hospices. We had a lot of nurses taking the course. And I just work with them. I volunteered as, as one of the first hospice volunteers, uh, San Francisco hospice. I went back and got a home health care aid license because this somehow... Ellen's death triggered all of this, like, uh, inquiry. Like, why, what, what is death? Why do people die? You know, why did this happen to me? You know, so I was kind of exploring all that.
1: You mention in your book that... Um, a lot of times when someone is in the grieving process, it can be difficult to leap out into something new. Mm-hmm. So can you say something about that? You you did the opposite. Well that might not be typical.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's typical and I don't know that I can explain it. All I knew that I got some message from somewhere saying that silkscreen's not what I'm supposed to be doing trust me, I will lead you, I will guide you. And I still believe when I do my keynote speeches, when I'm writing another book, I am guided to do this. And I, you know, what do you call it? Spirit, you know, I don't know what it is. It's a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery. And so for me... It's a blessing,
1: too. It it was a blessing,
2: Yeah. yeah, and a mystery. And I felt real supported because by selling the business... I was able to then go work at Holistic Life for $5 an hour or whatever I was getting because they still had some other income coming in. Yes. So if I had to go and get like a real job, I wouldn't be able to do
1: that. So that was a blessing.
2: It was a blessing and I felt, and I also had a rental unit in my uh, Victorian house. And so I looked at that and I thought, the world is supporting me in moving forward in a different direction.
1: Now... If we, where did the humor come in because you're, you're known as Mr. Jalatologist right, 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 uh, so, so, <laughs> And I love that I love it. And, and how where did the humor come in? Well, a couple of things. One, looking back after Ellen died, I realized
2: her sense of humor. We always laughed together. You know we looked at other couples that were around us getting divorced and we would ask each other, why are we still together? And she would say, Alan, because you make me laugh. And um, I didn't think I was that funny. I thought I was a pretty serious person. But I obviously made her laugh. And with her, I'd say, Ellen, I'm still with you because life is an adventure. That I never knew when I came home from work because she was a gourmet cook. Whether I'd have a great gourmet meal prepared just for me and her and our daughter Or there'd be 30 people that she invited for potluck and forgot to tell me. So life was always an adventure like that, which I, being kind of a reserved kind of person, I needed. I think I needed that adventure. Uh We were kind of opposites, but what do they say, opposites attract?
1: You had an experience at some point of... um, Giving a lecture someplace, and you, there was a woman who walked in, oh, wow. and this was a kind of confirmation. Wow, did for I have that in my book? Yes, that. Oh is my in God, your book, I that forgot story, that was careful. such
2: a powerful story for me. And that is, I was doing um, a lecture at Holistic Life University. It was a three-hour program because I was interested now in in humor. You asked how I start getting, and then Norman Cousins. Mm-hmm was talking about healing himself with humor at that time. So I became fascinated with that subject. And so I put together a three-hour uh, program. And since I was the, the director, I was able to schedule it. You know, I just right. put myself in the slot. You get to make it up. I you. made it up, exactly. And so um, I'm doing the program. It was one of my very first. Probably wasn't very good. But I look up during the first half, because we had in You know, break in between is three hours, and there's a woman way in the corner that had kind of come in late, sat down, and looked exactly like my wife Ellen. I was like in shock. You know, you know, I kept looking over there. You know, she looked like a real person. I don't know. And I, I went on with the program because I couldn't stop. And I thought to myself, at the break, I'm going to go rush over to that woman and chat with her. This is unreal. And I started to move in that direction and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around maybe for 30 seconds to answer that question, like where is the restroom, you know, something real basic. I turned around, the woman was gone, and she never came back after the break. Now, Justine, I don't know if that was Ellen. I don't know if that was in my mind. I don't know. All I know is that what I took from it, that this was Ellen, Approving of what I was doing now, being there to kind of guide me, and I'll tell you the truth. Even now, some thirty years after her death, I still feel every program I give, she is there. She is there in spirit, and so then it, you know, and then I start looking into that kind of thing, and I and I found scientists who weigh a body right as it dies. And they weigh it before and right after, and right after this twenty-one grams less weight in that person. So is that our spirit that leaves? Is what is that? Why are we twenty one grams lighter after the moment we die?
1: So you you really have some confirmation in in your experience of some sort of energy that goes on after death. Right. Right, Right. and in this form, it was Alan uh, really encouraging you to do the work that you're doing today. Exactly. I'm here with Alan Klein, and he's the author of Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, Embracing Life After Loss. And if you'd like to be in touch with him and the work that he does, you may go to his website, alanklein.com, and Alan is spelled A-L-L-E-N. K-L-E-I-N dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Alan Klein, and he's the author of Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, Embracing Life After Loss. Alan, let's talk about the grieving process. You've mentioned in the earlier part of the interview your own process of having just a terrible loss in your life. And talk about the grieving process. There's a, a lot of different kinds of losses. There's as in your case, the loss of a dear loved one. Mm-hmm. But people can you know lose a pet mm-hmm. and that could be devastating. We've all known people who are very close to their animal companions and mm-hmm. that's a big loss. Or or these days maybe loss of a job or a divorce or or uh so talk about the grieving process. What what can you tell us about grieving and how we can manage it or or Get through it or not get through it. I right, what do right, you have to exactly.
2: say? First of all, I, I I want to tell you that years ago, one of my very first published writing was in Prevention magazine, and the article was called "Did You Die Today?" and it was all about all of the everyday losses that we go to: traffic jams, denting the car, you know, getting ill, uh, not getting the raise, uh, can't get in the restaurant we want. I mean. Big ones, little ones, uh, losing our wallet. You know, there's just all kinds of losses. And so there, are, it's not just the major losses of a loved one or a pet, but it's those everyday losses. And we kind of on various stages go through, I guess, what Kubler-Ross determined was the five stages
1: of, of grief. I'm not sure I can even remember that. Oh, them. I'm not sure that I can, Depression, too. Depression, yeah. anger, um, Anger might have been one of the early ones yeah, I don't depression have any and uh some at some point resignation but yeah. i can't until remember together the, too the, yeah. yeah
2: until you get to the final stage but you know everyone i because i was a hospice volunteer and i'd see people grieving everyone does it in a different way
1: that's and an important point isn't it
2: i think it's very, because sometimes people try to compare my grief to your grief and it's totally different you know and and so you can't really compare. You just have to look at your own. And, you know, it's okay. The thing about grief, I think it's okay to cry, but it's also okay to laugh. And that's where I look at it because a lot of people think they feel guilty. How could I laugh at a time like this?
1: You know, I want to tell my own, a little bit of my own story. When I read that piece in your book, when you really wrote about that uh, I, I remember I, I lost my father and my little brother when I was 12 years old in a plane crash. And they were like missing for three months before we knew whether or not they had survived it or not. We knew the plane went down, but they couldn't find it. And when we finally received the news that they did find it and they were gone, they were dead, uh, my first impulse was to laugh. I remember laughing. I didn't. It took me a long time to cry. How old were you? I was 12 years old, uh-huh. and I laughed. Uh-huh. And it, at the time, it felt like a really odd thing, and I, I, kind of cringed with people around me. They probably think I'm really a bad person. Mm-hmm. And but that was my first impulse, and you're saying and that that fine. can happen. That's
2: you know that last year a book came out, The Other Side of Sadness. And it's by two researchers. Well, it's written by George Bonanno, I think is how he pronounces his name. But his fellow researcher was Dasher Keltner. And they did a two-year study of people, and they talk about it in the book, The Other Side of Sadness, two-year study of people who are grieving. And what they found is those who found some humor started to laugh or found some humor right after the death of their loved one, did a much did much better over a two year period than the people who did not find any humor. So here we think it's like not appropriate. How can you laugh at a time like that? And yet they're showing that it's so beneficial. I'm not saying that tears are not important. Right, right. You know, Grieving is very important. Yes. But also, I don't think we give enough credit to, to finding the humor. to, to Because again, it's gonna give us that perspective.
1: You tell a wonderful story of a woman who was who had lost her husband in 911 in the crash of the buildings and you describe how she was filling out a missing person report do you recall this and she said oh and she was filling in details and then she said oh and by the way he left the house this morning with the worst tie do you remember that She's, <laughs> I
2: do I do
1: and and you know can you describe the tie
2: Oh remember? I don't Let's see
1: I can I Maybe can tell because did. to give the visual because I just now read it. Yeah. Uh, it was green tie with pink flamingos and palm trees. <laughs> so uh and she started to laugh. Yeah, yeah. And and you really described that as when the she said something like what you had quoted her as saying in the article that you had read uh that she said well it's all that my laughter is all that my family and I have now. Right, right. Because we've lost everything. Right, and, right. and,
2: you know, in my research, I've, I've, there's stories like that over and over again I get from people. And I experienced it myself when I was in uh, a number of years ago, the major hurricane in Kauai. Aniki. Aniki, exactly. I was scheduled to speak like a week and a half later in Kauai at a hospital. And I thought they're going to cancel. They said, no, we need it more than ever. And all of these stories that came up, I remember one story, a woman said, you know, they're telling us, get out, go shelter, go get cover. And she said to her, her husband's like pulling her out of the house and she's going... No, my, my laundry's still in the dryer. It's not dry yet. I can't leave. How could I leave with wet clothes? <laughs> and they just start laughing. I mean, yeah. it's, it just... Yeah. The thing is, humor is all around us. But I think when we're dealing with loss and grief, and we forget it, you know? And But it is so beneficial.
1: I know for me, when I am feeling... Loss and or feeling something very strongly, and someone just comes up to me in what I would say is prematurely, and saying, "Oh, someday you'll look back on this and and you'll feel much better," or or you know th- these all these cliches and words of comfort when right. I'm not ready to receive them, I want to feel something else, and I want to be acknowledged, right? Yeah, to yes, feel yes. to say I am either angry or I am sad, I am depressed, I am feeling lonely, I feel lost, I feel grief, and I don't want to be moved off of that too soon. Right. So,
2: well, my advice is you need to listen to the other person. You can't, if someone is ill in the hospital, you you won't like to cheer them up, but maybe they just heard some terrible diagnosis right before you came in. You can't go in with a joke. You, You go in and you chat with the person and you see how they're doing And if laughter comes up, great. If tears come up, great. You know, I learned that it's a hospice um, volunteer, that I couldn't go in and try to cheer things up. I just had to be there for whatever happened.
1: Sometimes, do you feel, maybe this is getting a little psychological, do you feel like people who want to change the mood of another like that, um, is there... Own inability to be in that space themselves right. to they feel... feel
2: very uncomfortable with that space, so they cannot just go in and be with the person. Um, so that you know that you talk about what grief is. You know this. This is part of it. Um, part of how do you deal with someone who is ill or dying? Uh, and my thing is, forget about the human. Just listen. Listen. Listen.
1: That's a big word,
2: isn't it? Yeah. I, and I. This lesson struck me so much i may have it in my other book the courage to laugh i think i do but it's i was a new volunteer san francisco hospice and i was assigned one of the my first patients and i go in and the woman's lying on the couch and dating game is blasting away on the tv and I thought, I'm a volunteer. I want to help this person, but I'm not helping. She's on the couch <laughs> and watching and TV. Watching TV. <laughs> yeah. uh, so program. I kind of lowered it and she said, make that louder. And so I did. And then shouting because over the TV, I said, I'm here to help you. Is there anything I can do? And she thought for a while and she said, do you know how to dance? <laughs> So I got up and I danced around the room to dating gay music. And I sat down. I said, how do you like that? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders. I was becoming frustrated. So I kept asking her, is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can do? Long silence. And she said, you could leave. Ah. My heart sank. The family came back. I didn't tell them what happened. I went to the hospice office, told them the story. And they got hysterical. Because they said, if there was a camera in the corner of the room, Watching dance around the room, you know, interact, trying to please this woman, um, how funny that was. And I start to laugh. Yeah. But the big lesson, this woman, I mean, every person, every patient I work with gave me some lesson. And this one was, you can't go in with your own agenda. There you go. Just listen to that other person. And they're the ones that are dying. You're not dying. They're the ones that are ill. What do they want?
1: So maybe if you had that to do all over again, how would you do it now? If you walked in the room, dating okay, game is on. Well, I may
2: talk to her about dating game. Oh, did you see that? Did you like? You know what? You know, kind of in, sit down with involve her, involve her, exactly, watching it with her, exactly. And then maybe say, "Is it? You know, is there anything you need right now?" Yeah, but yeah. not keep saying. <laughs> No, yeah. I'm a volunteer. I want to help yeah, you. I you. <laughs> I have, I have a way to do it. But right? thank you. Yeah. Whoever she was, I don't remember yeah. her name, but she gave me yeah. a great
1: lesson. That reminds me of another story that you have in the book, and it was from Leo Buscaglia, uh, When a, a little boy, he describes a little boy, a neighbor had some deep loss, and the neighbor was crying, and the little boy crawled into his lap. And I think the mother asked, or someone asked, well, what are you doing? And the little boy said, I'm helping him cry. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what you're talking about, is that to help them do what they're doing.
2: Yes, and I have a story that goes with it. From my own life, which I didn't put in the book, which I just remembered as we're talking, uh, when Ellen was dying, I went to a therapist, And after the third or second or third session, he told me, well, Alan, life is difficult. And I got up and I said, my wife is dying. I don't need you to tell me life is difficult. And I walked out and I got um, Shanti at the time. I got a volunteer from Shanti. It was an older woman who lost her husband. We sat and we cried together a lot and we laughed together a lot. Um, because that's the way, you know, that comforted me more than somebody telling me life is difficult. Right. Just being with another person who understood and listening to what I was going through was so helpful.
1: And then that reminds me that it's it's good not to isolate, although it may be difficult, that we want to pull in and not get out in the world. But it's good not to isolate when we've experienced a, a large loss in right. our life.
2: right. Because that's, you know, we want to kind of crawl up and die in some ways, you know. And some people do that. And and one of the sections in the book, I talk about how people maybe who are grieving way too long, not that there's a limit, but, you know, for years might be way too long, that there's probably two lives lost, the person that died and the person that's still living but is not getting on with their life.
1: Right. Yes. And you make a good point of that. That if we need to, at some point, look at, are are we, as you say, a double loss? Are we just...
2: Right, right. So we need to kind of embrace the loss. It's why the five stages I have in learning to laugh, first one is, is losing.
1: I'm here with Alan Klein, and he's the author of many books. One is The Courage to Laugh, and another one is Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, Embracing Life After Loss. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Alan Klein, and we're talking about the process of grieving and loss that occurs in all of our lives. And if you'd like to be in touch with his work and know more about him, you can go to his website, alanklein.com. That's A-L-L-E-N Klein, K-L-E-I-N.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And Alan, the book is divided into five different segments. Right. Can can you say a little bit about each segment? Well, you
2: know, first of all, I thought if Kubler-Ross had five Mm -hmm. steps, five stages, I want five stages. (laughs) (laughs) But mine all begin with L. So losing. And we just talked about that in the last segment about kind of acknowledging the loss because you can't move on to, you know, you acknowledge it. And then the second is learning. And I think we touched a little about that, that I believe loss is a gift. From every loss, we learn. We learn, if nothing else, how precious life is. That we need to appreciate what we have right now.
1: Uh, so well, hopefully, I, that's that. So that uh, we we wake up to that. Uh, you 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 talk about a story about how there's. There is the preciousness of life surrounding us all the time, and we don't notice. Mm-hmm. And you, you really give wonderful examples. One of the examples you give is the uh, famous violinist, master violinist Joshua Bell, who is playing outside of a busy subway entrance in New York City. And describe what happened.
2: Yeah, and he's playing, and people are just passing by one after the other and not realizing that this is probably one of the greatest violinists in all the world. You
1: know, And and, and they're rushing forth in their life with right. their blinders right. on. Not
2: even listening to the music, just just yes. passing right by this incredible uh, person playing an incredible violin.
1: I think that there's a, a YouTube of that uh, that I've seen. Yes, I think It's, is. it's yes, just yes, amazing. Yes, 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 yes. And he is amazing. But that's you're saying that that when there is a point in our grief that we need to open up our blinders and right, see right. the and we preciousness. Can learn. That's
2: part of our learning process, you know. Um, one of my teachers, Ken Keyes, Jr., said uh, to want what you don't have is to waste what you do have. Mm-hmm. So if you're focusing on the loss, yes, it was difficult. Yes, you're missing that person. But to keep focusing on that is you you're not getting what you're you know you're not enjoying what you
1: already have. You have an analogy that that is very graphic for me, and you talk about like in that in that focusing on what you don't have is like focusing on the emptiness on what is not there right and you you mentioned something about if you go near a river and and you pick up a rock near the river. Uh, and it it has a space. Can you say something it, yes, about Yes, it has
2: a little gully or something. You know, you, you've displaced the rock. And what happens is the water fills in now.
1: You know, it's... it's uh, so nature doesn't like emptiness. Exactly. Exactly,
2: yeah. And even in your life. See, what I found in my life when Ellen died, there was this emptiness. There was this vacuum. I didn't know what was going to come to fill it. But looking back, what came to fill it was my passion to tell people how humor could help them get through life. Yes. I mean, I almost failed speech in college. I got a D, I <laughs> think. And now in my keynote speeches and workshops, I get up and speak. I've spoken to as many as 1,500 people in one room. I couldn't do that years ago. but And you know, when I first start doing it, even now, I get nervous before I speak. That's Okay. But I focus on my message that we need to lighten up, folks, that we've, you know, gotten too heavy. We need to lighten up even during loss, uh, that we will get through this. Uh, You know, things change, um, that you can move on, that this could be a gift to you. I mean, all those lessons.
1: So that's the learning. And then that was the second. And the third one.
2: So there's uh, a losing, learning, uh, letting go. And... I'm sure other other uh, people you've interviewed maybe talked about the Zen story of, of two monks who are walking down the road.
1: Oh, mention that. It hasn't been told in a long oh, time. Oh, really
2: good, because it's one of my favorite Me stories. Too. Two monks are walking down the road, and they come to a river, and there's a woman standing there wanting to cross the river. And so one of the monks goes up to her and picks her up and carries her across the river and puts her down, and the monks go on their way. About a mile down the road, the monk that did not pick up the woman turned to the other and said, how can you possibly pick up this woman? We're supposed to be celibate. We're not supposed to even look at a woman. How can you possibly pick her up? And the monk that picked up the woman said, you know, I put that woman down a mile back. Are you still carrying her around with you?
1: Uh Uh
2: How often, whether it's loss or other stuff in our life, we carry that around, and
1: I think that just
2: gets in the way of us living.
1: That takes us to the natural subject when talking about letting go is the subject of forgiveness and forgiving. Mm-hmm. What can you say about forgiveness?
2: Oh, God. Forgiveness is uh, one of the greatest things we can do for others, for ourselves, um, for the person we lost. A lot of people think, well, how did? You, why did you die before me? You know, or... Or why did you leave me with Why this? did you leave me yeah. this way? You know, I think forgiveness could be the greatest thing someone could do after a loss. And forgive themselves, too. Because often people who are working with a loved one who's ill or dying, think, oh, I could have done more. Or if only I went to the bakery, you know, in the car, it would have been me that was killed and not my wife or my child or right. whatever. Um, so I think... If we don't forgive, it just it just stops us. It just you know, it again, is letting go. We need to let go and one of the powerful ways is to forgive ourselves and others.
1: So, forgiving the the person who died, forgiving ourselves, that's a big one that's because we forget. Oh, that yeah. piece of forgiveness oh, yeah, yeah, that we yeah, kind yeah. of beat ourselves up and about all the things that we didn't do or didn't say or did say or whatever it is. So right. how, can, can, how can we rectify well, that? I, I think,
2: um, you know, and I think I did this when Ellen was dying, I, you know, how, how can she leave me? Why was this happening to me? How could, how could she do this to me, leaving me with a 10-year-old, you know? This wasn't in our script. We didn't right. get married, you know, for her to die, you know. Yes. All of this goes through your head, of course. And then I don't know that I consciously forgave her, but I think by taking, taking the lessons I learned from her, particularly about humor and sharing that with the world, I think that was my way of forgiving her for leaving. It's kind of keeping her memory going. But I guess you can start a diary or, you know, a journal, I guess it is, and write all the things. You know, I'd have lists. I'd have forgiving that person forgiving the people that didn't come to the funeral or never called me, you know, forgiving yourself for not doing stuff. Right. Uh, And let me just share with you, In I do a number of quotation books, and in one of my books, there's a quote by Dale Carnegie that talks about when we don't forgive, the other person doesn't know this. We are really hurting ourselves. Yes. And so I got this letter from this woman Uh, don't know her just a letter saying it was a two-page letter she was raped when she was a teenager and for 50 years she never told anyone and she said it was just eating away at her and then she discovered this quote of how um, forgiving other people and you know the Dale Carnegie quote how it's hurting her and not the the rapist you know they don't even know so, uh, she said, I took that quote, I put it all over where I could see it every day, and she said, it has given me power to take back my life. Just that one quote. about
1: Your book is filled with just wonderful, uh, inspirational quotes that that speak to us. And one of them that I, I want to read, because you quote Eckhart Tolle, and um oh. Actually, there are two kind of together that I wrote down. One is Ann Landers, uh, who I also <laughs> loved. I don't think anybody's replaced her. Yeah. She was a wise woman. She said, hanging on to resentment is letting someone you despise live rent-free in your head. <laughs> I, I love that one. Yeah, and that's
2: very much like the yeah. Dalconian. Yes, exactly. They're getting power over you. Yes. They don't even know it.
1: They don't even know it. But
2: if you forgive
1: and... right. You can let that go. The other one that was very powerful is Eckhart Tolle, whatever you think people are withholding from you, give it to them. Soon after you start giving, you will start receiving. That's wow. a big one, wow. Alan. Yeah, okay. You know, because when 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 someone's withholding or even even they died, and that's the biggest kind of withholding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever it is that you think that they're holding back from you, you give to them. What a big one.
2: Right. That, that You know, I, I, I've done eight quotation books. Uh, you mentioned one in the, in the, uh, in, in the introduction, uh, Inspiration for a Lifetime or Change Your Life, A Little Book of Big Ideas. I love doing those because people tell me how the one little quote, like the one from Eckhart Tolle, could change their life. Or the woman that um, told me the Dale Carnegie quote changed her life. Words are so powerful. And so whatever words we're feeding ourselves when someone's died or dying, you know, we need to kind of look at that. What, What are we saying to ourselves in that point?
1: It just occurs to me that, like with the quotes, to have that quote kind of go in and really change our life, which I I feel, as you just said, it can happen. It can happen in a moment Mm -hmm. of just the right. But it's also to be a gift to us and to be that inspiration. There has to be a kind of inner soil that's receptive to it on some level. Don't you feel
2: I think you're right. And I wish um, I could um, give some compost to people's soil, which Mm -hmm. maybe is what I'm doing. But I think it's got to come from the person. You know, you can't... I mean, my my father was always very negative. He would always see the half empty glass rather than the half full. And, uh, you know, I realized it wasn't until he was actually very much older and probably a couple of years from his dying that... I've been trying to change him all my life, and it didn't work, and I was angry about that. And as soon as I stopped trying to change him and just took him for who he was, it, it, almost like giving him the gift that was you know, making me
1: angry. And you didn't even do it overtly. He didn't even know. It was no, like an attitude change. No, it was change. just the
2: thing that I just started to change. Um, and I felt so much more love towards him and love coming back from him. Now, why did that change in me? How did that happen? I wish I could tell. I don't know. <laughs> I know.
1: I, I wish I could too. But yeah. there seems to be a kind of readiness at some point. And that's why it's important to have these tools around, like these books of quotes or whatever it is, or friends saying the right, asking the right question at the right time. That's very helpful. I'm here with Alan Klein, and he's the author of Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, Embracing Life After Loss. And if you'd like to be in touch with him, you can go to his website, alancline.com, and that's k l e i ncom Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Alan Klein and Alan we were talking just before the break we were talking about your father had was you described him as he was not exactly a positive thinker
2: very negative very negative okay <laughs> I
1: didn't want to say that but uh um, anyway in in your book you have an anonymous quote which I just think is so powerful for us uh, all to hear the, these reminders. it is watch your thoughts. For they become your words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. That's a powerful... It
2: all starts with what? Words.
1: Words. And it all starts with thoughts. Thought, uh, th- yeah, first with, thought, watch and your, the thought. Well, watch your words, watch your thoughts, yeah. because then they start to come out of your mouth.
2: Right, right. And how many people, I, I, they just like spit out, you know, they don't even
1: think, it just keeps coming. And, uh, anyhow. And so I, I know what you're talking about, about people who are, yeah. there's another quote in, in the book. Um, I don't remember exactly who it was, uh, maybe James Clevel, It's about. It's it takes more energy, or or it's it's harder to be positive than it is to be negative. I mean, it's uh-huh. negative uh-huh. is kind of a, a natural kind of river flowing downstream.
2: Yeah, I I don't think so in nature, but I think in human beings, you know, we focus so much on negative.
1: I mean I think we're reinforced. Our culture is reinforced yeah, I mean, for that the negative. News, yeah. you, know, you try to hear some good news and it's very difficult. Right. Except for fluffy sort of fluffy stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, like oh they rescued a cat or a yeah, puppy, yeah, you exactly. know but well they
2: have to try to try to balance. They don't do it very well. No. Um yeah, the world uh, through human being eyes seems very negative. Right. And like I'm I'm looking, you know, we talked about death and dying. It's It's almost a positive thing if you look at nature. You know, there's the beautiful trees, beautiful leaves, and then what happens in the fall? The leaves fall. They go in the ground to nurture the trees, so next spring all those beautiful leaves can come out again. And so I'm not sure, because I think people are like that. You know, we're here for a little bit, and we, we leave something behind to nurture the next generation. Very much like nature. So... I don't see like death is a negative thing in that in that way. I think it's like nature's way of, of balancing. I mean, imagine, Justine, if we never died, what the world would be like.
1: Well, describe the world as you would see it if we didn't die.
2: Well, with the, not enough food to feed everyone right now. So imagine if we never died, there'd be not enough housing, um, there'd just be... I don't know. You probably couldn't walk down the st- any street right. <laughs> as They'd big as we overcrowded, are.
1: Overcrowded, so
2: definitely overcrowded. overcrowded. I mean, and no one would have—not everyone have a job because there'd be, you know, too many people to.
1: But besides you know, all of that, there's something about the preciousness of life because there is death.
2: Yeah. Don't would you we? Feel? Would we?
1: When you
2: know, have a deadline to write a book, or you know, uh, you wouldn't get anything done if you live forever. Right, because right. You can, I can do it in two hundred years. Why, right. It why it, do I? We're, yeah.
1: we're a great species for procrastination.
2: Right. So we? why do it now? So that you know, it's it's like I don't know. It's like death kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's sad when we lose a loved one, but it's part of life. It's right. not
1: something that we don't know is going to happen. So. Yes. Going back to the five sections of your book, you we were. Can you mention yeah, we win? That was the first
2: one. And then we can learn from the loss. right? And then we to move on, to get to the living and laughter, we need to start letting go. Right. And then the fourth one is living again. We can start living again. And we talked about if you don't start living, if you keep grieving, then two lives are lost.
1: I, I will have to mention um, another quote you use. This is a Will Rogers quote. He was a great humorist who died much too young. Uh, he said, don't let yesterday, yesterday use up too much of today. Live your life today before it becomes yesterday. So, Isn't that I, great? Yeah,
2: yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, um, so to to start living again after the loss. It's so important. Like you said, to get out, to do stuff, to to find something you love doing. Cause Those things things didn't go away when someone you love died. Those are still there. You just put them aside.
1: Now, if we can't get to laughter, if that's not our our thing yet, there is something that you suggest. And talk about the magic of smiling.
2: Smiling. You know, you're right, because sometimes you can't laugh. But the smile, first of all, you connect with other people when you're smiling. There's all scientific evidence. I don't know if I have that in the book or not. when you smile, you're you're helping your immune system. It's all scientific evidence about that. But uh, smiling is an international language, so you don't have to like comfort anyone. You can just maybe smile with them. You know, with your words, you don't have to comfort them. Uh, If they don't speak your language, you can smile and they smile back. It's just a way of connecting with other people.
1: You know, uh, I I have a, a org- organic food store that I go to, and they advertise that they have very helpful uh, employees, and and it's so true. They have trained these people, or some sort of indoctrination, or some sort of I don't know what they've gone through, but these people are smiling all over the store. These people are smiling. You go to the checkout stand, they are smiling. You go to the counters, and they'll ask how they can help you, and they have big smiles. It makes such a difference. I want to be in that store.
2: You know, waitresses report they make a higher uh, amount of tips when they're smiling than those that don't smile. And I love it you're reading some of the quotes. I'm not sure it's in the book, but a smile is a light on your face to let someone know you're at home.
1: Oh, nice, <laughs> nice, very nice. And and you don't have to feel it all the way down to your toes. It's just a matter of moving the muscles. Right, right. So, so say something about that.
2: Well, I in my workshop, sometimes we get into smiling. and I say, all you have to do is take a pen or a pencil, hold it the long way, push it back in your mouth. You can't see this on radio, but uh, push your rocking your mouth, take that out, and keep that position, like you're biting it. Yeah,
1: yeah. But and so you back just
2: your teeth. you forced your face to smile, even if you don't feel like yeah. smiling. Yeah,
1: And something physiologically changes.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, it's it's um, it just I don't know. I think smiling like lifts you up when you're down. Right. So consciously remember to smile.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Again, not
2: to cover up stuff, but just to help you. To get along. To,
1: you you say, Alan, what you tell yourself about your loss is a good indicator of how you will recover from it. Mm. What do you mean by that statement? Mm.
2: Well, we kind of touched a little on this. You know, like people say, well, how could that person have left me? You know, how, you know, why is this happening to me? All of that again. It's like, what are you telling yourself about the loss? Um, I, when Ellen died, I was probably pretty negative. But then I realized this was an opportunity for me to grow, to move on, to uh, see the world differently, to contribute more to the world than I have been.
1: And one of the things that you did, pretty, I think pretty soon after the death, you took a trip with your daughter. Uh, uh, you changed your longitude and latitude. You did something that you've never done before. Right, right. And t- talk See about See, my that.
2: daughter, you know, we were both moping around. And, I, you know, again, it's something in me that's. I said to Sarah, I said, we need an adventure. We need to do something, you know, out of the ordinary just to get our mind off of it. And so we took a trip to Alaska. It was on the ferry system. So you, you know, were there and then you got off and we did a whitewater rafting trip, which the very day before this company had been in business like a year and a half, two years the day before, one of the rafts overturned, and they had a helicopter people out. Ooh. And so they didn't know if they were going to do it. We were the first ones down the river the next oh. day. Ooh, wow. And they said, we'll keep you posted. And instead of us like, oh, yeah, we don't want to go now, we were like, oh, no, we want to do it. We want to do it. But they can't cancel. Yeah. And they actually let us go, and it was a thrill. You know, and we took a seaplane ride and landed in the middle of this black light, and there were bears on the on the mountain. Oh my um, It was, just, and my daughter's favorite thing was seeing the puffins in the water, and with the, we went on a little boat that stopped right by a glacier and slept there overnight. And all night long, the glacier would crack, and the boat would move, and and a train into Canada, and it was just incredible. And she still talks; she's forty four now. Uh-huh. <laughs> She still talks about that trip and the puffins. And, the, uh, and it just, it really changed. It's not, you know, we talked about mommy. We talked about Ellen for many, many years. We still do. It's not that we put that out of our thinking. It's just we needed something to, to bring our spirit back again because we were pretty down. And so I think people need to find something maybe they haven't been doing something they've always wanted to do. Maybe that person, they couldn't do it because the other person never wanted okay. to fly or take a trip or whatever it
1: is. Maybe learn to pay, play an instrument. Exactly. Pick up the ukulele. Exactly. <laughs>
2: and so that, that I think, really helped my daughter and I get through that loss.
1: Yes, yes, I'm sure it did. So, um,
2: and, also- and one other thing that I just, re- it really bonded us. Oh, together, yes. it was such for a father and a, and a daughter to bond. That was just incredible. Oh yes,
1: I can imagine.
2: Yeah,
1: Alan, it's just been my pleasure being with you today. Thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions.
2: Well, thank you. This has been great and way too short. <laughs> it's
1: true. It's true. True. I've been here with Alan Klein. He is the author of Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying. Embracing Life After Loss, as well as many other books. So check him out. Go to his website, and his website is a l l e n k l e i n dot ncom or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.